Hey, pals, welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. I'm Stephanie. And you blew the line. <laughs> oh, oh, the, the, this is the show where we play. Okay. Do I then say, <laughs> okay. and this is the back matter and welcome to the back matter? Or do you uh, say that? No, I'll, I'll, I can. Okay. So I just do the tag of what the show is. Okay. Let's try this yeah. again. <laughs> uh, all right. Hey pals, welcome to Team Up Moves. I'm Fiona. And I'm Stephanie, and this is the show where we play superhero-themed tabletop role-playing games and then talk about them. And it's one of those talking episodes. It's time for the back matter for Exceptionals, which is a game written by Gar Atkins and published by Bramble Wolf Games. And we've got our players back with us for for this. Yeah. And we've got our... Let me just try that. (laughs) And we've got our players back for this, Steph. We do. Uh, Shall we introduce the players? I think we should. You heard her play... Mandy Manticore Core, Becca Petunia. Welcome back, Bex. Hi. Hi. Am I supposed to say something? Um, no, I think that's I think that's hi. that's probably fine. Hi is great. We're <laughs> a cheerful group. Now we've established what your voice sounds like. We've established what my voice sounds like too. And Fiona's voice. Armon? Um, hello, this is my voice. No, no. Let's let's say uh, why don't you introduce Armon by <laughs> his character, Stephanie? <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Everyone's a little bit like uh playing the speedster Eddie Varma. Armon. Hello. Hi. Good to be back. Glad to have you back. So shall we have a conversation about the game we've just played? We should. And we start these episodes with the origin story, where we talk about what prep went into the game. And Becca, I'd like to to start with you on this. Can you describe kind of what you had to do mechanically to build Mandy? So with Mandy, uh, I knew I wanted a, a very certain type of character. I feel like the exceptional system uh, is really good at sort of trying to capture metaphorical things through the lens of superpowers. So I wanted to try to try to capture something that sort of dealt with the idea of passing and not passing and the idea of things that are gender affirming and things that are maybe not so gender affirming <laughs> mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. through the lens of superheroes. So I kind of kept that in mind when I was building my character. It was really important to me that my character had like these these incredible powers balanced by not wanting to use these incredible powers <laughs> because they were they were so conflicting uh between her personality and her power set and again like i mentioned i was really interested in the idea of what what is it like when you can't hide that you're you're a mutant in the same way that uh some of us can't hide our differences <laughs> yep and you know it's the queer metaphor pals we're just we're just we're all in yeah i i wanted to try to make the subtext text and kind of go with some of those those sort of personal concerns that you know i have in my life i think, i think that's great that that uh that, that you explored that in in the game and 
I I enjoyed being a part of that. And and you you know you talk about the balance right between the the power and the personality. And and I think that exceptionals is keys that because of the way that when you put a character together, it, it specifically asks you to in general have two. Uh, what are called protocols about your powers and two that are about your personality. And so it, it really has those in, in equal measure. Armand, what were the power protocols and what were the persona, I think they are, protocols that, that you pulled for Eddie and, and how did that come together? So when I create a new character with a, with a completely new system, um, I tend to get a little overwhelmed by the choices at first. So I will jump in and mess around and see what, what stands out to me first. So for this powers, the rumor stood out to me. And that's kind of what I build my character's powers around. I like the idea of super speed. I always have been really excited about, about exploring that. And so I put that in, super speed. And I decided to go at it from mix it up with a different power set as well, because, you know, you, you're, you're required to do, to use two tags for your powers. Two, two, two pro, two protocols. Two protocols. Yes. Two, two protocols with a number of tags. Mm-hmm. So I combined super speed with that, with the protocol of the enhancer, which allowed me to share my speed and my ability to slow things down with, with other people, which I thought might be fun for making sure that I was a part of the group with, with the team up, giving me the excuse to not, you know, just sort of selfishly use my powers, mm-hmm. but making sure that there was a lot of room for teaming up. Well, so, and, and I think one of the, one of the, the pieces to, to bring into this with exceptionals is that there isn't really a, it's not like a super speed, like ability or power or, you know, like something that like we might have seen in champions where it's, this is a damage thing. This is a speed thing. This is a duplication thing. The protocols here are, I don't know, is metaphoric the right word? They're removed from being a power, right? It's not that you're fast. It's that you are able to move around and then you can kind of refine what that means for your character. I, I think I would say that they are at a higher level of abstraction than the powers in a really crunchy system like Champions. And so you pick the kind of power you have, and then you answer a bunch of open-ended narrative questions to describe what your power will do. You have to make a lot more decisions early on about what kind of powers you want and then shape them with non-numerical answers to the questions that the system asks, which is, Armand, exactly what you're describing having done with uh, Romer, I think the term is, a mover-arounder, yes. which in your case was a super speedster. But a te- like a teleporter would have would be in the same class in this game. I loved how flexible and creative the system let us be to go with what is arguably the crunchiest system of like D&D. It always kind of bothered me that the system doesn't quite allow you to just like make things up without, you know, house rules and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh sometimes that can be a little overwhelming in the case of of this particular system trying to figure out what the appropriate answers to some of the tag questions were when there was so much, you know, intentionally abstract ambiguity to those to those questions and to those descriptions. I I, I think I to to even bring this into a little bit of a of a specific example. So both Mandy and 
Penny had uh, augmented yeah. as one of their protocols. And for each of the protocols, there's what's called a Genesis question. And, and you answer this, and all of the answers to these questions have these things called called tags. That's what we were counting up during the actual play for our bonuses. And so for augmented, the question is, how has mutation changed or augmented yourself? And, you know, you were able to answer those in two very different ways. And that formed some of the basis of Mandy's I guess being a manticore, right, is kind of yeah. the way to put it, and Penny's electrical field generation. And then within that, there are those questions, Becca, that you you just alluded to, where you kind of pick some of these. There's uh looks like eight, nine, maybe 10 questions, and you pick three of them to answer, and those give you additional tags. So these are things like, what is a physical mutation or trait you have developed? That's something that Mandy answered and Penny didn't. What is the way you use your augmentative mutations in battle? And so it's got these questions that are cueing you to make tags that then, in theory, are things that you're going to want to see in the story. You're going to want to use these. You know, you're thinking like, I want to be in battle. Like, how am I going to use this power in battle? I'm going to write a tag for it. One of one of the things, though, and you know, this was something that we we definitely noticed is when we would roll, we would have a lot of tags apply, and I know. Sometimes it felt like I had the exact same answer to like four different questions. Like, yes, one of these I wrote like I'm a teacher. And then the other one I wrote like I care about kids. And then another one I wrote like I know what kids need. And then like when I would have to roll along those lines, it's like, okay, I get all of these. And that felt a little a little odd in some ways to me. And it made me a little confused uh, and a little unsure of how to proceed when I was doing the character creation to make sure I wasn't repeating myself or putting too much in one area and not enough elsewhere or anything like that. I, I had a similar problem. Should I should I speak to it? Sure. So this is a character creation system that insists that you give your player character four different faces two kinds of things that define them other than their geno, their mutant powers, and two different sets of mutation-based unusual powers. I see why a designer would want to do that. It's boring if you have someone who's only a detective who punches things very hard. But the effect of that as a character creation system combined with a strongly narrative emphasis that says create whoever you want, just, you know, be sure they're three dimensional and interesting to you is that if you want to create a mutant who's got one big power with a lot of consequences instead of several different related powers, it's very hard to do that in exceptionals without answering a lot of questions the same way and then wondering if you should apply four different tags that say the same thing. I was thinking it's it's very much not just a superhero simulator, but a simulator of the world of a lot of X-Men comics from the late 70s and beyond. And so I found myself comparing the system for character creation, not just to the character who I was creating, but to some of the most famous, you know, company-owned mutants. And I found myself thinking this is a very good system if you want to play Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler has two different sets of mutant powers, both of which tell different stories about what he can do. He is a teleporter and he is an acrobat. And he's got 
at least two different personality aspects. Some would say three or four, but let's say he's someone who cheers other people up, who's always able to see the bright side of things and make the world into a fun adventure. And he's also very religious. He very much takes the spiritual seriously. And you could easily go through exceptionals if you're a Kurt Wagner fan and just make that. But if you want to create someone like Laura Kinney or Alex Summers, Alex is probably the best example. Alex Summers' havoc in, in the X-Men has one mutant power, and it is a doozy. He can gather energy from the sun or from things around him and just blast the heck out of whatever he is facing. Uh, that's his power. That That's what he does. He's got a very complicated personal life that you would not wish on your worst enemy. But that's his mutant power, and there's really no way to create Alex Summers in The Exceptionals without answering a lot of questions. He blasts things, and then he blasts them, and they are blasted. And... I'm not sure what you do with that, except to say the system requires a versatile character. Well, but I mean, wouldn't you say that that maybe you can, you know, there's there's blasting to hurt. And if you think about, oh, how do you use your mutations to create an asset or advantage? You blast something like it, it, does this not kind of force you to, to do, I mean, as we even saw in Champions as well, of, hey, I have this one main power, but these are the different ways that it applies. Because I, I think we, you know, uh, Armand, that came across with Eddie, I feel, where you had the kind of speed thing, but then you're like, there's, there's super speed and there's power augmentation and there's, you get dizzy when you stop and all kind of coming out of that same initial kernel. Well, that's, that's what the tags system does. And I think, Fiona, the solution you're describing would be, would come from having a lot of different tags within one protocol. And as I think about the directions that Exceptionals gives you, I think the if you really want to create a character with one giant power and then a complicated personal life, the right way to do that, and uh, honestly, I probably should have done that in creating Faraday, would be to take one mutant protocol and three rather than two psychological protocols. I think one thing that that would that uh, worked out really interesting mechanically, though, is that when there were a lot of similar um, tags, it meant that you were really, really good at one specific thing. Like, uh, like when uh, Mandy was making those lesson plans. I loved that moment. That was a plus seven to your role, if I remember right, and that felt like like a huge bonus. You 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 geared a lot of uh, your character around being a good teacher and and so when you were doing teachery things, you were great at that. Yeah. But when it came to to like, you know, some other things, you didn't necessarily have a lot to add. Whereas I tried to make a lot of different tags, which meant I was able to add like little ones and twos if i was lucky here to to a lot of my roles but i never had that one big role where i got to add in like a lot of stuff for one particular idea i think i think that that is something that you know when i was saying like we were adding some really big numbers you know maybe maybe that is something that is intentional and is you know the strength of the system i think one of the things that I, I'm not going to say is good or bad, but one of the things that sort of requires a lot of attention then falls onto the GM in terms of the difficulty setting, because 
the GM needs to think like, am I not to, I mean, Fiona was the GM, but like I was thinking as Fiona was doing this, it's like, well, when I'm setting the difficulty, am I thinking about how difficult this would be for a, a human who's average at everything? Am I thinking about how difficult this would be for a teacher? Am I thinking about how difficult this would be for, you know, an acid gun? Am I thinking about how difficult this would be for a volcano? You know, like, yeah. Or am I thinking about like, how hard would it be for a human to shoot magma out of their mouth? And like, <laughs> okay, then that's a real big number. But- yeah, that is an important thing to bring up. And I think we're going to get into that later as well. When we when we sort of talk about the, the dice and the re- resolution mechanism in this game. One last bit of the character, or, or shall I say the the writer side of the the prep for this game is the base and the contacts. So this is another thing that y'all were prompted to build collaboratively, which was to define the base for your community. And you came up with a roller too, which was this board game cafe in the warehouse district. And it, it had these different pieces to that. I love that. The, the idea that you define a base of operations and a hangout space before the game begins as part of character creation is one of the aspects to this system that I really liked. One thing that I really enjoyed about the creation process, uh, you know, for all the things, the characters, the base, the contacts that you have, is that this game does ask some really interesting questions. In in addition to making your tags, it also has these things. Uh, it, it's got a small section uh, uh, called things to think about. It's an optional part of character creation, but I had some of the most fun I've ever had in character creation, just answering those questions and and thinking more in depth about uh, about my character and about the base that we came up. The base starts with a really good question: What uh, makes you feel most like yourself? I believe that is is the question. What place can you always be? be yourself and that's that's a good question that puts a great focus on a place that i've obviously never been to but already feels a little bit like home yes it's also a good question if you want to set this up to play like a superhero version of cheers the the ted (laughs) danson sitcom it it sets you up nicely for that as well yeah where everybody knows your mutant name yeah (laughs) cool and and then you know it the, the last thing that i i do uh try to mention in the origin story is always what I do uh, to the extent that I'm I'm running these things. Mm-hmm. And as the editor, there uh, it was real light, actually. You brought the character creation stuff that you did in making the base, making the contacts for the base. So for example, Dan and Banter and Gordy were all NPCs that that you all made based and filling out prompts around like who are the people kind of in this community. So I just got that for free. And that made things fairly easy to kind of set some of these opening scenes. And also the other thing, and we didn't mention this before talking about your individual characters, but the advancement of this game is is based on stating specific goals that your characters have. You sort of have two goal tracks and like a short term, a medium term and a long term thing that you want to hit. And so for this one shot, I I asked you to just like, all right, you know, do at least one of those, you know, we're not going to get to it, but at mm-hmm. least kind of know where mm-hmm. your character is going. 
And so that then is sort of feeding into what I'm looking at. You know, one of the Eddie you had, you want to use your powers in a sort of a super heroic way because you were, uh, you know, you were a new kind of closeted Gino. This wasn't a thing you were doing, but it was like, you're excited about it. So I'm like, okay, that tells me something about this character. This tells me somewhere that I want to try to put them. I hadn't thought of the mechanism for state your short and long-term goals as a way to have session zero give the GM more to work with and sort of more to build on. But in parts of life that aren't RPGs, you do that all the time uh, in any kind of workplace or any kind of, uh, you know, teaching situation. You do want to know what the goals that the people you're working with, what those goals are. And, and that's a really neat touch in this game. And then lastly, as far as NPCs, it does kind of give the editor the option of actually statting out NPCs as if they were characters and choosing protocols and that kind of thing for them. There's also what the rules refer to as a quick gen method that is, you know, almost like a three line NPC, just real quick. What's their motivation? Give them three tags, kind of think about what their stress box levels are, like their their health levels across mental, physical and social and just kind of go from there. And and that's what I ended up doing. And that uh, I love that uh, just being able to make NPCs on the fly if necessary that that have a little bit of mechanical weight to them, but are not something that I had to prep significantly ahead of time. And and coming off of champions, I mean, this is this is a very anti champions game. Yeah. I think I like that we put these back to back. Yes, I absolutely appreciate that speed. Yeah. All right. Next up is the letters page. And we always open the letters page with the question, what is this game trying to do? Arman, do you think you could give that a shot? Well, from what I've read of it, it feels like this game is aiming for a slightly cozier story. One that's, that, that's you know, very focused on the human aspects more than necessarily the fighting or the superheroics. It's something that really wants you to focus on a more rounded out approach to storytelling. And I feel like it, it, it does accomplish that pretty nicely. I also think this, this is a little more focused on a slower type of storytelling. Uh, I, I spoke before of how much fun I had really, um, thinking of the character motivations that I have of, uh, in ways that I never do for most of the characters that I create for games. And, we, you know, we're called writers, we're called editors, and mm -hmm. that's a bit of a joke, but I think this might actually be better as a writing game than it is as a, a more live in-person session or, or like we did over Zoom. Uh, Becca, I want to get your thoughts. Is Exceptionals well, first of all, do you agree with uh, Armand's take on that? And and is Exceptional successful at what it's trying to do? So I think that that's a, an interesting question. It's weird that successful is more complicated than just yes or no in this case, in my opinion. Going off of what Armand was saying about how this is kind of slower and, and more human, no pun intended, but sort of structured storytelling, it is very reminiscent, you know, again, and clearly very intentionally so. I mean, we mentioned the Claremont Simonson gene, but it's very reminiscent of a lot of those like between storyline issues of X-Men and stuff that we, we certainly still see today. And I think that this book does a great job with that world building and answering those kind of questions like, what is life like for these characters in general, which inspires you to think about what life is like for your character in specific. 
And I think that that's really cool. And that's something that I really, really like in fiction. I think my favorite X-Men comics are the ones that focus a little bit more on the, the sort of just getting along with each other as people and and sort of dealing with the way the world sees you. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm hesitant to say, yes, this is successful, is I think it's incredibly successful at helping you sort of world build and picture what it would be like to live in this world. But I think sometimes that happens at the expense of being a game. And I I like what Armand was saying about how this almost feels like a, a writing exercise as much as a game. I found it a little overwhelming just how much world building was provided before we even started talking about dice at all in the instruction, you know, in the in the rule book. That's the word I was looking yeah. for, in the instruction manual. Yeah. And it was very, very interesting to to read or, you know, I'll be honest, skim through the uh the the world building materials. But Sometimes I wondered a little bit about gameplay and fitting those sort of things into a game. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to describe that a little bit because this is, I just described it as like chock full of vibes. I mean, <laughs> so there's a whole first chapter that you know, talks about the Claremont Simonson gene mutation, the gene and, and that and genos, wonderfully tongue in cheek kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. There's a, there's a section on Geno slang that I love. There's, you know, uh, mutations that are not useful or dangerous are bunk. The mutation expressing itself is called pivoting. Yeah. I tried to use some of those as well. Like, I really love that. And then between chapters and even for each of the protocols, there's short stories, there's, co- you know, drawings, comics, there's a recipe in there. It's, Again, just the vibes, it goes so hard on the community side of this. And that really, that part of it absolutely comes through in the book. And then around page 250 or page 200, you get to, here's how you actually roll 2d10 to play the game yeah, part of it. Yeah. I mean, to, to be fair, the things that you need before you start rolling dice that do are going to involve numbers eventually are earlier than page 250. But if you are trying to figure out how to start playing the game quickly, this is either not the way to construct a rule book or maybe not the game for you. The vibes parts of the rule book, the parts that are artifacts from the world of Genos that Gar Atkins has created for us as, as the, the game designer, those parts are so good that there's a case for just picking this book up and reading it as a story about a world full of mutants as superhero fiction in the way that you might read novels by Bob Prohl or April Daniels. Those parts are maybe stronger than the parts that set out to explain this world and how to play in it in what should be very straightforward expository prose. and. We're asking, how well does this game do what it sets out to do? And if what it sets out to do is not only create a world that feels like New Mutants 21 Slumber Party, which is my pick for the greatest superhero comic of all time. Um, I'm on the record. I'm print saying this. Uh, Not only... Uh, you know, create and immerse you as a reader in this world of genos doing their own thing and trying to get by in a hostile world. And maybe some of them fight bad guys and most of them don't. And some of them just have a mutation that blows up balloons. 
if you want to play a game and not just read about this world, you need to figure out how to play in it. And I think the expository prose sections that tell you what to do and how to do it that really should be not colorful prose full of character, but pane of glass, straightforward, here's what you do and how you do it, maybe are the kind of thing that a commercially published or team-written or commercially edited game might have an easier time doing than this game, which is very much a high-energy labor of love. Now, I think that we did, in the end, have, I I hope, a fairly representative play of the rules as written you know we 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 did we did get there and and we had the tables printed out and and, and did that so given that we did kind of end up learning it uh armand how did the mechanisms work for for you what were your thoughts on the on the 2d10 plus tags resolution so i feel once you do manage to figure out what the rules are with it it felt a little tricky for me to to sort of it, it it felt a little bit like easter egg hunting managing to get all the rules and putting them together in one spot because all the different options you have are just so spread out but once you do figure out the rules i feel it's really easy to hold in your mind what you need to do you've got uh the 2d10 and then you just add whatever tags that you have the tag system is actually pretty simple once you've finally gotten them down uh, and, and you could speak to this more, Fiona, than I could, but I feel like it's easy on the GM to interpret your roles. How successful were you? Like in D&D, I find myself like if I set a difficulty of 10 and someone makes a natural 20, I have to interpret how successful that role is. Mm-hmm. But here there are very simple mechanics in place for for rewarding characters who do really, really well on a role versus, you know, characters who just who just slightly beat it. I feel that's that, that was a really fun thing to play with. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that. And and so from my perspective, one of my role roles, roles. Uh, one, one of my jobs, one of the things I was doing while we were playing was setting those difficulties and, and the game provides a chart. It's got six bands, very easy, easy average, hard, very hard, near impossible, and then ranges within each of those. So when you said you wanted to do something, I would say all right, which of those six is this? And then within there, which of the four to six numbers do I want to pick and say that's the one? So average is not like, average is not always 12. Average is eh, between 10 and 15. So one actual like thing I'm wondering, how did you feel about the numbers I was throwing at you? Did they feel as arbitrary to you as like the difference to me between 14 and 15 or even 10 and 15? I I didn't have a grasp of that yet. Did it feel fair? Oh, it felt fair. It also felt like the system was making Fiona do a whole bunch of work that maybe Fiona didn't need to do. I I wouldn't call it work, but it, it was... There was a a level of arbitrariness, I think. This game is very open-ended. It's a a very open-ended game. And it felt like there is a lot of pressure, uh, both on players uh, in character creation, and I feel like on the GM just a little bit in in finding focus, in in how to uh, either set up a scene or or, or put down difficulties. 
But it did feel like you had a, a good grasp of how difficult a certain task should feel. Yeah. There are certain things where I felt like, and I felt, I, I, made, I felt really good about being an enhancer in certain spots because there are some tasks that felt more difficult. I was like, um, I would really like to help if this was possible, uh, you know, make this role just a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. I know I was talking a little bit about how that interacts with the text and mm-hmm. like, I wonder, you know, if Fiona would have done different things, you know, had she been thinking like, oh, Mandy has this many tags in this, so she's going to get a plus seven. I'm not saying you would metagame, but like, I'm I'm saying like, it, it could shape your thinking in different ways. You know, and one thing that I, I found interesting about this system, and I, I mentioned, so I have some experience with the old Marvel role-playing system, the the first Marvel role-playing system, not mm-hmm. this new 616 system, the one that <laughs> the one that we fans affectionately call phase rip. And uh, there's a lot of similarities between this system and phase rip, but phase rip, because phase rip is an incredibly dense system, has a much clearer sense of like what represents a task that is extremely difficult Mm -hmm. what represents like they will work it out like in terms of like pounds per square inch of punching like they will tell you like if you want to rip a phone book in half it is this level and requires this number is that that's why they call it phase rip right because they know exactly what you want to rip in half yeah exactly wait is that actually why they call it phase rip no it's the the it's the six seven stats okay yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you didn't find it distracting to constantly have to like pick numbers for things. I had the feeling it was like when, when we go to my favorite taco place and there's like eight or nine different kinds of meat that you can put in your tacos. And, and if that's about the limit for me. And if there were 20 different kinds and they're all delicious, but just like, well, first of all, you always order the Baja fish. I mean, that's just like, no, I mean, look, this, this comes out, you know, this is not, this is not too bad. I mean, this to me felt like if I'm DMing, Dungeons and Dragons, it's like, okay, I will often need to come up with, with, with DC numbers. And yeah. there's some go to's, right? Is 10 is 10, on the easy 15. side. You're 13, you're 15, et cetera. You just kind of, you make it work. Now we do have the perpetual floating segment, which deserves a jingle, which is how does this handle Hawkeye? And the way that it does it is that that difficulty that we're talking about is up to my discretion of how difficult it is for the character. So if there was a Hulk character trying to rip a phone book, I would actually put that as very easy, provided they were appropriately hulked out. If a a Clint or Kate character were trying to do it, I would say, no, it's a little bit harder. Now, the board game metagame part of my brain, and I think Bex, you were alluding to this a little bit, is looking at this and and saying like, how does that interact with tags? Because, you know, Mandy is good at being a manticore and therefore she has a bunch of tags on it. So if I'm like, well, that's a manticore thing, I'm going to make it easy for a manticore. And then on top of that, she's loading up the tags. Like, I, I don't quite understand that piece yeah. of how those two things are supposed to interact. Well, yeah, and that's that's what I was saying again about phase rip, a system that I have a lot of love and a lot of hate for. <laughs> we'll maybe, you know, I'll talk more about that at another point. But yeah, we're going to play it. It is nice that it does say ripping a phone book requires, you know, a 50 on the dice because that uses a D100 system. 
that requires a 50 on the dice. And then it's just assumed that the Hulk is going to have like a plus 40 modifier to to his ripping dice rolls. Whereas again, I feel like with this system, it sort of requires you to do, to make that call. Am I going to think, is this easy for the Hulk to do? Or is this easy for Kate Bishop to do? Yeah. There's a little bit of gilding the lily here. There's a little bit of making the same adjustment to an initial difficulty twice using two different game mechanics. I think that it probably comes across more for the more physical actions where it is perhaps more, um, I don't know, narratively obvious or, or at least more objective, right? If we're like, okay, how many, you know, how tall is that? How, how, how muscled is that character? Like they can do more strength things. I think that it's, it is more successful on, on some of the cozier side of things. Like Armand, Eddie had to roll to give a muffin to a child. And, <laughs> you know, I was not making that easier or harder because of Eddie, but then you were able to, to bring in a bunch of tags on that. And, and I think that, that felt good. Yes. I, I yes. think that, that you said that didn't feel like it was a double ad when it was the social kind of thing. I, I think, uh, Stephanie described it perfectly that it, it feels like gilding the lily a bit in terms of, of difficulty and how, um, successful, you know, how, how difficult you want challenges to be on a mechanical level. But I think that what's interesting about the tags is how they guide your decisions. Uh, so in that example you brought up, I used all of my Joker tags. Mm -hmm. I, I brought in a pun. I brought in that my reputation is genuinely harmless because I tend to goof around a lot. If this had been like, say, D&D, where everyone more or less has the same tags, I might have handled that, that, that thing differently. I, I wouldn't have known where to go. I, I, and this, and, uh, I think the tags really help guide your character choices in interesting ways. And the RP for that ended up being very sweet because, yes. because you did make that pun about being blue and, and, mm. and all that. And it was, it was a cool moment. Yeah. What, one, one of the other things that the tags do is if you're going to get an advantage from a tag, you have to storytell. If you're using a tag that says, I make puns, you have to make the pun. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enforce that. I'm okay with you saying my character makes a pun, but, it, <laughs> but it does mean that in fiction, a pun happened. And, that actually, I mean, look, there's some advantages to just saying that the pun happened. I just, you know. What advantages are there to not making a pun? <laughs> I see none. No, I mean, I this this comes up in games though sometimes when you when you put down that your character is very skilled at uh, say articulation, but the person playing them isn't necessarily so. So uh, I, I I'd agree with, with uh, Fiona. Sometimes you can just say, yeah, it happened. And because your character is skilled at this, it was great. This is why novelists find it easier to create terrifically famous, talented painters and composers <laughs> than to create terrifically talented lyricists or poets. Because then you have to write the damn lyrics. Just, just quickly, one of the things on, you know, I used to be, I was on the first two seasons of uh, the Rollout Podcasts mm -hmm. Mask series, and I wanted to play this character who was this, like, Real, like, I mean, delinquent is the name of the, uh, the, the, the playbook in masks. I wanted to play this character who was like this real, like incorrigible, cool delinquent, but I couldn't role play that. <laughs> like once I realized that we were doing role play and I couldn't just say like, and then I, I say something cool and teleport away. <laughs> once I realized that I had to role play, I, I couldn't do that. Um, which, 
you know, again, on the podcast, led to some interesting growth for that character. Yeah, this is but, the, the real true story behind yeah, Get Up's but, uh, uh, playbook change. But it it is, you know, it is something where I, I now, you know, with years more experience behind me than when I first rolled that character, you know, four years ago, five years ago, mm-hmm. is I like things that encourage you to to do that sort of acting that mm-hmm. encourage you to well if my character is going to be a jokester i have to re- be ready to be funny and i feel like the way the tag system for the personality uh protocols kind of works mm-hmm. or the persona protocols i believe it's called yeah it it really sort of pushes you in that direction yeah yeah this the character creation system for this game is so thoughtful and so keyed to what you need to do if you really intend to role play a character in particular over a long campaign or if you're planning to use this, which some people do for systems like this to help you write fiction or script comics. One one piece of the resolution mechanisms that I I also kind of want to make sure we touch on a little bit is then once the role happens and you have added those tags and you've narrated appropriately to match those tags, we then subtract the numbers and you get a band of how successful it was. And there are seven of these going from critical failure to great failure to failure, mixed success. You got to land right on that zero, then success, great success and critical success. And I think there's a couple things to note about this. One is that the critical failure, mixed success and critical success specifically ask the writer to narrate that situation rather than the editor. The writer is what the system calls the player. Yeah. And I found that, I found that kind of interesting. And I think I found that that worked out probably pretty well with the critical failure, critical success. I don't know if I always trust players to come up with mixed successes. Like that feels a little, but it really depends on the players that you have. Yeah. You know, players who are interested in telling a good story, I feel like are going to be able to handle those mixed successes and truly Mm -hmm. think about like that kind of like one good thing, one bad thing. But if you're trying to play this game with people who prefer like crunchier systems, I feel like that does give them a little too much leeway to be like (laughs) "Mm." power game. The the counter counter to that is if, if you're playing this game with the kind of players who want to have big fights and win the fights based on numbers, why are you playing this game with those players. <laughs> Correct. I will say, though, I did miss some of the crunchier systems that put limits on your powers because my character had super speed, which allows them to do a lot. Mm-hmm. Like in this game, we um, destroyed a coal plant or, or did some sabotage there. A speedster would in, in you know, a, on a purely mechanical game with the ill-defined um, upper limit I had, would have been able to technically do this entire mission himself. So I felt like for the sake of the story, I had to do a lot of uh, sort of self-policing, making making sure that I put proper limits on myself in a way that didn't completely ruin the story. I was watching that as uh, Eddie decided what to do, uh, especially once the sabotage got underway. The flexible or the really the non-existent upper limit on power levels combined with the amount of discretion in terms of how you roll and what you roll and where the stories go, that wouldn't be a problem for, like, the Hulk. 
it's a problem specific, at least for me, to the two sets of powers that can very, very easily break a superhero game. And which, for what it's worth, when I'm like bringing people or new characters into the masks game that Fiona has sort of taught me how to run that I run on Sundays, I say, you can't do this. We, we can't, I, I can't run these powers. They break a game, which is super speed and time travel. If you're going to have a very narrative oriented system and you're going to have speedsters, it becomes very much up to either the player or the GM to say you can go fast, but not that fast. And if you talk to people who do military planning or who study real world strategy, the more things you get to do, the easier it is for you to do anything. And if you create a character who can get two or three turns every time your opponent has one turn, you've broken a game, I think. And I really admired the way Eddie as a character, as well as like Fiona as a what do we say, editor, uh, you know, managed to not break the game and not make it too easy. But that's a speedster problem as well as a system problem. I wouldn't call it a problem. I, I think as far as system is concerned, it's it really is just, a you know, when you are playing a game like like masks and, and like exceptionals, it really comes down to making sure that you are kind of on the same page at that ability level. And you're playing with people who have, as, as Becca, you were saying, that that story mindset of this character rather than a a power gamey, I want to win every scenario mindset. And that's one of the things too. And again, things that I, I got from, you know, being on a Masks podcast for like four and a half years or whatever. <laughs> is if you want to tell a story, and if you are being story-minded, part of that is making sure that, I mean, like, this is basic elementary school teacher stuff, but like... Speaking of which... Yeah, I was going to say that everybody gets a turn. Yeah. Yes, the speedster character could have broken the generator. We didn't necessarily need me to breathe magma on it, but Armand was being a good, you know, good game player oh, yeah. and, and letting <laughs> letting everyone have a turn. And that's important, you know, because again, I have been in like D&D type groups where the the player figures out how to attack multiple times in a turn and it's like, okay, I'm going to do everything and yeah. yeah. You know, the other players are just sitting there, but if you really want to tell a story as a group, you understand that every character needs their their chance to do something. That's right. And and I'll say like even explicitly in in exceptionals, I'm not sure if it talks about spotlight. I can't remember. I mean, managing spotlight, I've read that in enough games is like ingrained at this point. But there is actually an initiative system if you do get into more of a confrontation, which we didn't see in our AP. But it, it does have a popcorn initiative. So a, a player goes and then they choose another character or NPC until everyone's gone and 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 that. I also do want to talk about while we're we are looking at, at some of these the, the results is the critical failure and critical success because this was a surprise joy yes to me yes and I think it was something I didn't necessarily appreciate especially when you bring in the tags part of my brain in this is is going to the recent as of this recording thread about Pathfinder second edition and sort of what you know the way that plus ones are like really actually good because you're getting closer to the crit that felt kind of the same way in this and so that we we got to see some of those critical I mean rolling a crit right on lesson plans was the highlight of my day during that recording and then there's the specific mechanical all right you get to choose to increase the bond or you get this narrative thing that felt cool 
it it made me kind of happy that you piled on these tags and we spent the time adding up the numbers. And then there was like, we actually got something out of it. It wasn't just like, yes, you also still succeeded. It was a celebration. That was something that maybe I didn't realize was a mechanic or exactly what that mechanic was going to feel like until we started playing. But I like the idea that counting matters Again, not to sound like an elementary school teacher, but like the idea that like, you know, so so in that example, right, you said that or there was some example where the difficulty was a two and I had plus seven. I feel like in most systems it would be like, well, why even bother rolling? You know, yeah. like I said, it, it's if the difficult, I mean, the difficulty was a nine. That was it. It was the lesson plan. Yeah. The difficulty yeah. was a nine and I had a plus seven. And of course, I even say it, you know, when we were playing mathematically, you can't not hit nine yeah. then. The dice can only roll a two at their lowest, but you want to roll because you want to see how, how high you win. You want to see how high your score is. And it actually matters how high your score is. Yeah. And I really did like that because again, it kind of makes the dice rolling a little more, more exciting in that way. Yeah. And, and I will say that the, the gradation between failure and great failure and success and great success, that, that wasn't is interesting to me and also kind of a little struggle. It's like, I'm giving you a success. Is this too good of a success? You should have gotten a great success if you wanted this one. But, but those crits would, I I did love those. I remember a critting on a a role you made for me, you know, to be able to jump over a fence. And I was like, "Uh, wait, how do we make this interesting? Cause it's just (laughs) me. uh, But it, it shows how much this system really relies on having good players at the table on having people that you trust to tell a good story because narrative control is given to players a lot more than it is in other games. In other games, you know, you have a if you have someone who's a slight problem player, the GM has a lot more control over, you know, how things can shake out. But here you 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 got to put trust in your players and your writers. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also a system where because there is a a dice mechanic for and now something weird and unusual happens having things succeed or fail unproblematically so you can move on to another story beat is what to say not troubling yeah you don't have to always look at every story beat and say do i want to jazz this up and and going in you know that specific fence dice roll you know you, you sort of did it as a little bit of flavor i'm like oh i i asked i called for that in case of failure to be honest, like the success was not tremendously interesting. It, it would be like a little like, oh, you have this little bit. Failure would be certainly that you you draw some guard attention. Uh, but then you got the critical success and it's like, oh, OK, well, in that case, there is this boon. So the last question that we always ask in the letters page is when in this game did you feel like you were playing a superhero? And Steph, I want to give you the opportunity to answer this one first. So I wanted to create a character whose disability and whose power were really the same thing rather than a character where they were related. And I felt like the system wanted me to create a character who would always remember that she wasn't just a superhero, that she was in a world that wouldn't let her get what she wanted in a world that was always pushing her out, even when she was fighting to protect it. And I got that vibe pretty consistently. But I think the time when I really had the sense of empowerment against the wrongs of the world that superhero stories promise 
was really towards the end of the storytelling, towards the end of the actual play, when we were finally able to disable these systems, when Faraday was finally able to extend her electrical field and just shut those computers down. And I liked the way that the story we were telling together made us wait for it, as well as the way that this system gives you other things to do while you're waiting for that moment. Aaron, how about you? Did did Eddie get that superheroic moment? And again, y'all were not traditional mm-hmm. uh, superheroes, but I, I think you, you kind of get the gist of the question. When did that happen for him? I feel like I lucked out and got two moments that really felt, if not traditionally superheroic, but 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 did make me feel like a hero. There was one where I, I, I managed to get a critical success on sort of the windup uh, after Mandy and Penny had escaped. I had a moment uh, to just like super speed, do a little extra sabotage mm-hmm. and uh, leave a lump of coal on the CEO's chair. But the moment I really enjoyed was when they were making the final escape on the canoe and there was a night guard there. And because of my powers limitations of only being able to affect one thing at a time, mm-hmm. when I was holding that uh, guard in slow motion while, you know, waiting for Mandy and Penny to uh, canoe to escape and get far enough before I was able to escape myself. It, it was a small scene described pretty quickly, but it felt tense uh, to mm. me. Uh, I really enjoyed that moment. When was, uh, when did Mandy feel like a superhero, Becca? You know, like, it's funny, and, and I feel like we've all kind of touched on this, but like, this game isn't really about feeling like a superhero. Yeah. Solid answer. Yeah. I did a fun thing with an acid tail, and I, I belched lava on a building, but you know, it's, like we said, it's the things like succeeding at the lesson plans. And when I got to be nice to the to the the, the kid with the weird with the uh, the the spiky hair and Love talk that about stoma. And it's it's those things that are what felt the most important and cool to me. Whereas shooting flames at the, the coal plant. Yeah, I liked that because, you know, we should be investing in more sustainable energy futures. <laughs> but it was just like, okay, I rolled the dice and then this happens. There wasn't as much narrative or or creativity to it. Mm. And there certainly wasn't like a mechanical weight to the that superheroics thing. It was you know, the same, again, the same role that, that you made for Lesson Plans. Okay, moving on to ongoing retcon and spinoffs. So we're going to go around starting with ongoing and the prompt for everyone is what else would you want to see out of this system? If you were to keep playing either with with this character or another character, what are the parts of the game that we didn't touch on that kind of excite you from what you know of it? And uh, Armand, why don't we start with you? So the two things that I would be really interested in is seeing bonds develop. Mm. Which is something that's really only, you know, that, that the, the, the development of a bond you have with other characters is something that only really comes into play when you have like multiple sessions. Yeah. I'm also was, would be really excited, um, to see my goals move along that track. Uh, I, I, I didn't do my, uh, complete character creation in that I only created one goal set for myself. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could see towards the end of the session, I could see how my goal set, my, my story would chart out over multiple sessions. And I was excited for, you know, Eddie's story to continue on that way to go, okay, this is where it all starts. I want to see how this ends. 
Yeah, Eddie really felt like he was having an origin story. Becca, how about you for an ongoing for for Manticore? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's a place for it. I think in terms of things feeling like an origin story, we are kind of in an interesting place now. A somewhat depressing place, but a somewhat hopeful place for Mandy, where I feel like Mandy has no choice but to be a superhero anymore, because I'm not convinced she can even work in the Gino public sector right now. But she still wants to help people and help kids. So I'm not really sure what else there is. And it's interesting to be in that situation, especially in that situation in a world that, you know, we didn't establish, like, has the Mm X-Men. Where do you go in that situation? And that's a question that would be interesting to explore. You know, I know we said that, like, the community will, will, will protect her, but like... Banter teleports you away. Yeah, but like, what does that mean? It would certainly be interesting to explore that. Can I do future of the character, future of the world that the game builds, and future of the game itself? How about two out of three? Because I am watching the clock. Okay, so... Penny was the oldest character coming in, and I think she's the one who changed the least. Uh, she already knows who she is. In a Masks game, she would she would not be a playable character in Masks. She would be an adult. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And uh, whereas, you know, Mandy and, and Eddie absolutely could be. I, I would love to see Faraday honestly doing more eco-sabotage and slowly over the course of several sessions realizing that her tentative and shaky belief that sometimes state and local government will do the right thing and protect you. Either she would lose that belief uh, and and become more and more of a saboteur, or she would lose it and then regain it, which is a story I would love to be able to tell with her. Nice, hopeful, uh, civic-minded. Hey, I've been watching the news. But this is a game also that really wants you to have a large cast of characters and to really build out that world. And I think if we were going to play this game for a number of sessions, it would be really delightful to see whether, you know, are there X-Men? Are there Hellions? What are the other institutions and both human and, you know, Gino? What does this society look like? Where else do you go? What are the other neighborhoods? And Uh, Kayfabe, University Heights. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But okay, how do those neighborhoods relate to Geno's? And, uh, you know, are there other, do we ever visit other cities? Because this is not a a city building game. I would love to see that world built out. And I think if if I were going to be in a long campaign of exceptionals, I would probably want to alternate between three or four different characters so I could ask different questions, especially if they were all adults. Yeah. And I think that, that, that for my part, seeing the base change and there are ways to do that. As you hit those goals, you get experience and you can use that to apply additional tags and other things. And I think that the, I'll probably say this later, but the, the base is a real kind of special part of this game. And so getting to watch the players affect that and narratively along with the NPCs, I think would be a cool way to, to keep the game going. Now let's talk about your retcons. So what we're looking at here is, were you to play this again, how would you approach it differently? Or would you think about a hack or otherwise even modifying the rules in in another session? Becca, can we start with you on this? Yeah, you know, I'm 
I'm not certain I I have anything. You know, again, like I I'm pretty happy with how my character wound up playing and what my character's story wound up being. I I feel like maybe I would like to have tried it again now that I understand the rules a little more thoroughly after playing maybe make some slight changes to tags and which questions i choose and and weaknesses and goals but i think as a whole i'm i'm pretty pleased with with how this came out yeah i don't know i mean I'm, i know that's not the most interesting thing to <laughs> no, it's say fine. no hey look that's that's still a valid answer steph you got a retcon yeah i Wish that I had given Penny like a secondary mutation or something else to do with her powers that wasn't a consequence of projecting an electrical field. And Mm -hmm. if I were going to keep playing her or do this again from scratch, I think I would change one of the mutation protocols, one of the powers protocols for that. One of the things you actually sort of got at there, and I want to maybe dig into slightly, if y'all indulge me, the question of having another mutation. And I know, Armand, you talked earlier about slowing this game down, drawing it out. One of the things that I worry in that case is that there is not mechanical variety in this game. Yeah. Speaking as someone who uh, cannot necessarily control their attention, there's not like, there's not a shiny piece. There are not moves you want to hit that seem exciting. There's not a big fistful of dice that match a power. So the variety to keep the game fresh just isn't coming from the mechanics. It's coming from the story. It's coming from the tags. So the extent to which you can keep playing and keep this interesting is in some part based on, does your character have enough stuff that you want to keep doing stuff with it? I I I wish there were a way you could switch protocols after you'd played a character for a few sessions in, in the way that... It- you might be, I think. There, there might be an advancement. Okay. I feel what would be really interesting is, uh, as a slight tweak to the rules, is in the same way that we have protocols for our powers and for our personality, if there were something similar like that for goals. Because there is a lot of pressure on the players to... well. I mean, not, I mean, to uh, have interesting goals, which is what uh, a good editor needs to, you know, figure out adventure hooks. I feel like having sort of examples for that or, or the book laying out some ideas for that, because this book does have offer some really interesting ideas for powers and for personality tags. Having something similar like that for goals could make a the storytelling uh, a, a lot more easy to plan out, but also have an end because i feel like this is not one of those games you can play indefinitely this is a game you play with an end in mind i'm gonna disagree a little bit i think if you got into the storytelling enough you i could see a campaign just going on indefinitely as these characters grew up and changed what they wanted and the world changed around them and got easier or harder for genos but you would need a mechanism if you're going to keep playing the same characters to adopt new goals i mean there, there is one as you hit your goals you can get new goals but but that is you'd have to hit them uh, bex did you want to, to no i was just going to you know reiterate what you were saying about like different moves and it feeling kind of samey even games like masks that still you're always rolling the same two dice over and over again giving the more specific kind of moves even though the masks moves are are kind of open-ended and are also always based on 2d6 i don't know it felt something like oh i gotta get into a situation where i can i can use you know this cool 
ability that I have. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, I again, I do kind of wonder if it would start to feel samey if I played it too much, because I'm always the one who's inventing those situations. It isn't like, okay, I know when I'm being grappled, you know, I then get to roll an extra D6 to, to see something like this. Or like, mm-hmm. if I, if I get a good roll here, then that means that I get to use my moat powers, the, the stuff that you see in masks. Armand, do you have a, a retcon that you would put in here? I think uh, th- there's the goals there, mechanically speaking. But for my character, I think I wouldn't. I I, I would change my idea about playing the Joker for one of my personal tags because hmm. that puts a that 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 there's a little. Uh, you need to definitely play a little more humorous. And I found that that's something I would do if we did a more social session. But you know, if you also want to have adventures, I felt like I wasn't. My character wasn't, you know, confident enough in this particular situation to be all jokey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's about it. I, I feel maybe with more sessions, I might have brought in more jokes uh, as well. But for this one particular one shot, I felt like this was Eddie venturing out of his comfort zone, yeah. which is not a place where jokes come easily to. I love what you were doing with Eddie, the way that he wants to make everyone comfortable and take things lightly. But also when he has the chance to use his powers, he's this very different person that just felt so real. <laughs> Thank you. I- I'll end with, with my kind of going harder on the stress yeah there were times narratively where i gave this wasn't a story i mean there are rules for if you are fighting someone either physically mentally or socially you know it, it, it are however the conflict is where the roles can dictate you getting stress in that situation and you know it'd be cool to have that stuff happen but also i think just narratively when you are in situations kind of doing the you know that sort of gm move of dealing harm is established there were times like oh yeah hey you should take a social stress from that that i don't know maybe you should take three social stress (laughs) like let's start loading up these bars because there's a little bit of an economy of bringing you together to do this game has equivalent of comfort and support of healing each other's stress and in kind of seeing that in some ways narrative economy rolling yeah. by having maybe a little more teeth as the editor. The final piece of this section is spinoffs. What parts of this game would you like to see out in other games that other people should be thinking about adopting or or working from? What really shown that we'd like to see in other RPGs? And I think that order-wise, Steph, you get first crack at this one? My two favorite parts of this game are the character construction for the personas for the the psychological emotional parts of your character there's a lot of guidance for figuring out what your character is like beyond just a few descriptive phrases i love that i would love to see that available even if it's not mandatory in other rpgs and the vibes pieces the you know diaries and film scripts and advertisements and schedules all the pieces that show you what life is like and the world that this game is depicting that could also be in a you know non-gaming setting those are so well done i would like to see a little bit more of those in in manuals and made available to new players for other games how about you arman what i really like um that that feels very unique to the system is 
how much freedom you have in defining your own skills that add to your to, to your roles to right add character creation to decide everything that's going to give you a bonus to your role i think that i mean it, it guides character choices it, it shows you where your limitations as a character are which is is is, is interesting it gives you it, it gives you a, a interesting things to choose when you level up i like that freedom i like that freedom of deciding how good you of really deciding how unique your character is and having that apply me- mechanically. Becca, what's a spinoff from Exceptionals that you want? For as much as I kind of had some complaints about the amount of, as as you all have called it, vibes in the book, I think that, you know, I appreciate how this sort of system forces you to think about how superheroes live as people and how powered people who aren't player characters would live in a society. And I think that that's something that in any any superhero game that you're playing or in any superhero thing that you're writing, you you should be thinking about because I think that I do like that a lot. You know, maybe we we could have edited it in some different ways, but I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. What I really do appreciate in all of these personas and the other parts of the book where there are prompts and questions, there are so many example answers. Yeah. And I love that the author put the time into putting those out. I think they're both a spur to creativity. And for me, it it kind of helps me get at, okay, what is the intent of this question? Because I feel like I get this in rule books, especially some of these PBTA games where I don't know. It's it's almost it's almost cool to ask questions that are a little obfuscated or something, and I don't understand them. And then I get uh, self conscious. I'm like, I don't know what they mean in this game about this kind of thing. This is like it's super clear. Of here are some examples. These are ones you can take or build off of, and that that part of things. I mean, really, just just those personas, those persona chapters are great in the vibes, in the here's how to think about these general types of powers and kind of the um what it means to affect an environment what it means to be able to move freely all of that and having those examples i i just i found that absolutely wonderful finishing up as we always do it's time for the back issues and i am not as well read by leaps and bounds as the three of you. So I'm going to let you kind of take it away. What are comic issues or story arcs or runs that people should go read if they want to see something that's like the way The Exceptionals plays? So there are two New, new Mutants runs that uh, work well for this. The current New Mutants run is great. That's the one by Vita Ayala, right? <laughs> that Oh, that's the one, yeah. It's it, it, It's got the coziness. It's even got some a couple of data pages that feel like character creation and it's it's a fun read and it 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 explores how mutants relate to each other on on a human level but there's also another new mutants run in volume three starting with issue with issue 33 by uh, written by dan abnett and andy lanning where um the mutants decide that the best way to, you know, foster human mutant peace is to actually live amongst humans, get a regular, get a really boring regular day job and, you know, pay rent instead of, you know, living on an island and stuff like that. I feel like those would fit really well with the type of story that Exceptionals is trying to tell. Becca, you want to take this before I do? 
Yeah, I'll try to make mine make mine short and to the point. So when I was told about this back matter system or, or thing, I was kind of thinking about what inspired me to make the character of of Mandy. And I'm going to answer in a couple of different sort of atypical ways. I'm a big fan of the uh, Saturday morning cartoon X-Men Evolution, which is basically what got me into uh, X-Men and probably superheroes in general. In season two, they introduce uh, Hank McCoy, the Beast, in an episode where he is a high school teacher who looks like a human because he's keeping his mutation in check and he no longer is able to keep his mutation in check, turns into the bouncing blue uh Idol of million. No, that's half of Ben Grimm's tag, but he turns <laughs> into the, the, the bouncing blue beast and, uh, he, he can't teach anymore. And he's, he's hired by Xavier's school. And we see that his personality does not change when he's the beast, but he recognizes that society is going to judge him. And I felt like that was really strong. You know, one of the things that I, I think about a lot in terms of the, the mutants. And again, I think about this. As a trans woman who's sort of in the midst of transitioning, uh, for whatever that means and for uh, whatever the end goal of that is, mm. is this idea of passing versus, uh, not passing. And I think that anything with the Morlocks, any storyline with the Morlocks is really interesting for that. For all its many, many, many flaws, I still love the, uh, Grant Morrison X-Men run. And I think that in some of their sort of, a lot of it happens implicitly or off camera, but I always think of what, um, Riot at Xavier's, uh, does to sort of through the dialogue of characters flesh out what the world outside of the Xavier school looks like for mutants. Mm. You know, that's the arc that introduces Jumbo Carnation by killing off Jumbo Carnation. But he's back. Don't worry. I mean, don't do worry. It's fine. fine. <laughs> it will. That's that's a conversation for another day, Steph. But the the idea of like, what would it look like if you were a mutant fashion designer and you had multiple arms and you had to design fashion for things like this? is something that I, I kind of wish, you know, again, more things sort of dealt with. And uh, yeah, there's some problems with that arc and the whole Morrison run, but it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in that. But ultimately, the thing that inspired the comic that inspired the creation of Mandy the most is a comic that went around social media years ago. It looks like it is by an artist named whose tag is Lynn Hadotrem. But uh, in it, Jean Grey is saying that she can't take the pain of going out on the street as a mutant anymore. Emma goes, I know how you feel, friend. It's very difficult for me, too. Scott is crying and says, a boy looked at me and said to his mother, look, his glasses are red. And then <laughs> Beast, Glob Herman, uh, Jono, my favorite character, Beak and Nightcrawler are all sitting at a lunch table, just glaring at them <laughs> with no dialogue. And to me, that really encapsulates some of the way that X-Men stories are told, where it's like, how hard is it necessarily to be Logan and live in the world versus how hard is it to be Glob Herman and live in the world? Mm -hmm. You know, how hard is it to be B, whose literal only superpower is that he looks ugly? 
He cannot fly. He cannot do anything. He just looks bad. And I'm very interested in in that kind of Yeah. And I'm sure I'll have Fiona post a, a link to this uh, yeah, show social notes. media Yeah, I'll post. check the show notes. And I'll be the, yeah, we'll tweet it. Uh, team of Moves, all yeah. this stuff. So, I, I, Becca, said a lot of my lines. Uh, the ride at Xavier's storyline from Grant Morrison's run on New X-Men. Armand, absolutely the Vita Ayala written current run on New Mutants, which also benefits from having Rod Reyes as a principal artist who really does oh non-combat does scenes and so good. expressive characters. I would add the, to my mind, really underrated New Mutants Volume 2, uh, which is written by Christina Ware and Nunzu DeFilippis. Volume 2, Volume yeah, 2. Which shows some of the original New Mutants uh, starting recruiting mutants for a new school, and they go around and they visit mutants, some of whom have since become a big deal in X-Lore, like Prodigy. Uh, and you see how these different mutants, some passing and some not passing at all, are doing in their various baseline human run environments uh so yeah new mutants volume two certainly a whole bunch of the claremont and simonson written new mutants uh i'm gonna say again new mutants volume one number 21 the issue called slumber party is the single best superhero comic of all time according to me your mileage may vary uh, i'm not sure how seriously i take that claim but it is how what my heart says hmm. these are stories about Genos, mutants, people who have a metaphorical difference, which some pass and some don't, trying to live in a world where that's not widely considered okay. And I'm noticing that these tend to be stories about teenagers or young people. And slice of life, uh, how do you get through the day, stories about older, non-super powered people are somewhat rarer. So I would add to all of these uh, ex-comics a whole bunch of Astro City. The Kurt Busiek creator own series, which I think has come up on this podcast before about a city. And I'm sure it will again. A city yeah. and what all so the different good. superheroes in it, uh, empowered people in it do when they're not fighting or solving crimes or doing heroic things. Uh, what is it like to go home at the end of the day and realize that the same ability that, you know, lets you stop the giant robot from robbing a bank makes it very hard for your kids to hug you at night and you know multiply that by 300 and you've got Astro City. I would also just because Becca you're going so hard at the question of passing and non-passing mutants and of what is it like to be a mutant who's got a low prestige high visibility kind of bunkish mutation. There is specifically a story about a club for non-passing mutants that was in the Domino Annual from, I think, two years ago. And there's an issue of X-Men Unlimited written by Brian K. Vaughn, I think number 24 or 25, in which Marrow, a mutant who has the extremely uh, repulsive to many mutation of bones keep popping out of her at odd places, just bits of, of, of bone and marrow and bloody flesh that she can use to fight, but it's really a horror show, has to team up with Kate Pride, who everyone loves and who seems to Marrow to have all the advantages. And it not only is it queer as hell, but it is a story about passing versus non-passing mutants that hits, I think, a lot of the beats that Manticore in her way also hits. Yeah, I, I just, you know, and one of the other things too is I just, sometimes I wish that that passing versus not passing thing kind of also went along with actual reasons why people do or don't pass, like a character who is Glob Herman, but also is trans, or, you know, a character who is, you know, a person of color 
color who doesn't feel like they belong in a certain situation. But I don't always know how good the mutant metaphor is at dealing with people's real world problems. But uh, I don't know. It's it's good. I I'm yeah. Okay. Well, with with that and and all of those recommendations, I think we bring this run of the exceptionals of actually there's no the. We bring this run of exceptionals to a close. I want to thank our guests and I want to ask where we can find them. Arman Babu, where should people look for you on the internet? Should you like to be seen? Well, you said it. It's it, my Twitter handle is pretty simple. It's Arman Babu. And yeah, uh, and you can find a lot of my work at uh, Comics XF. But anything else that I do, I will uh, probably tweet it out. I, I, I tweet very little else. <laughs> Self-promotion, that's how you do it. Becca Petunia, how about you? Uh, well, I'm kind of in the middle of different projects, um, but uh, you can... Follow me on Twitter, where I tweet too much, at Uncle Petunio, because sometimes you establish a brand and then transition. Um, <laughs> yep. but, uh, yep. So that's Uncle, uh, like the person, and then Petunio, which is like the flower, except with an O instead of an A. You can find my work on uh, the Muppet fan site, Tough Pigs, uh, where I think way too much about puppets. And uh, I host a semi-regular podcast there called Hubba that is muppet trivia and uh you can find my old superhero uh actual play on the rollout podcast highly recommend can you spell hubba for us just so that it's easy to look up yeah i mean uh it's uh h-u-b-b-a hyphen w-h-a but you can just find it uh it's on the um if you go to tough pigs you'll find it but it's we have a podcast feed just called muppet fan podcasts um, at Tough Pigs, and we cycle through a couple of different shows on that that feed. So I'm one of the shows that you'll you'll catch on there sometimes. Excellent. I, I've got it in front of me now. I am excited about it. it, it, uh, it season two, <laughs> season two starts. Um, season two of Hubble starts probably next week. Oh wow! Uh, they so should I, be releasing those episodes, but that's when we're recording. Yeah, yeah. By the time this is out, uh, that should be there. So check the show notes. All those links, all those Twitter handles. Thank you again, Armand and Becca. Steph, we did another one. We did the thing. Thank you so much. This was so much fun playing with the, uh, we should call it the, the Gino metaphor, <laughs> uh, in a world of, in a world of Genos. And we'll be back soon for even more of team up moves. I- I'm going to, at the very end of this, Stephanie, I'm going to indulge you a world of Genos. Uh huh. Would you like to make a women's basketball joke at this time? I'm not playing the punster, but I am going to say that uh, a world of Genos will be a world that asks much of its players uh, and gives much in return. And will also be a world in which tired just means someone asks you to do something that you don't want to do, which is one of the many very quotable things that the great coach Gino Ariyama uh, likes to say. Well, thank you for that. All right. Take care, pals. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to find an a, a, a existing piece of music we can use as our Hawkeye problem. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I bet I can find one. Hawkeye? I bet I can right. find one. How does this handle Hawkeye? There we go. It's pretty good. Thanks for listening. This run, we've been playing Exceptionals by Gar Atkins and published by Bramble Wolf Games. You can find it on itch at bramblewolfgames.itch.io slash exceptionals. 
We're going to take a week off between runs, and then we'll be back to play Mutant City Blues 2nd Edition by Robin D. Laws and Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, published by Pelgrane Press. This is a gumshoe game, which means it's about investigations and solving a mystery. But it does it in a world where people have superpowers. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt, copyright 2022. We're on Twitter as at Team Up Moves or at Fiona Wim and at Accommodatingly, respectively. You can check the show notes for spellings. Our website, which has all of our episodes from all of our runs, is teamupmoves.com. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. Find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com. As always, remember, your podcaster friends need those reviews. We need those retweets. We need those forum posts to spread the word about the show. So anything you can do in those regards, we totally appreciate. Take care, pals.